Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Managing Adult Urological Issues. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast along with Kristen Smith. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download and via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Gary Lamack and Dr. Christina Sadowski. Dr. Gary Lamack graduated from Cornell University Medical College in 1991 and completed a residency at the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center from 1991 to 1997. Dr. Lamack completed a fellowship in incontinence, urodynamics, and neurourology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center from 1997 to 1999. Dr. Lamack is professor of urology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He has a secondary appointment in the Department of Neurology. He has board certification in Neurology and Female Pelvic Medicines Reconstructive Surgery. He is the program director for the Urology Residency at UT Southwestern, a position he has held since 2004, and was the director of the, of the fellowship in FPMRS from 2014 to 2019. He is past president of the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine and Urogenital Reconstruction. He's currently a trustee of the American Board of Urology and the chair of the Certification Examination Committee for the board. He has authored over 160 peer-reviewed articles and over 25 book chapters. He has authored urinary incontinence guidelines for the American Urological Association and the European Association of Urology. He's also a co-author on the Neurogenic Bladder Guidelines currently in development by the American Urological Association. He's a member of the American Association of Genital Urinary Surgeons. His interests, clinical interests, include caring for women with incontinence, pelvic organ, organ prolapse, and other pelvic disorders. He also has a strong interest in caring for patients with bladder dysfunction in the setting of neurological disease, and has authored numerous articles and chapters on this topic. His research has focused on improving the care for patients with neurogenic bladder disorders, and he is a frequent national and international lecturer on this topic. And, uh, good afternoon, evening, as um, Gigi mentioned. Um, my name is Kristen Smith, and I'm co-moderating the podcast with her. Just a little bit about myself. Um, when I was in my late 20s, I became paralyzed due to transverse myelitis. And since then, I've been trying to navigate my way back to a new normal, especially with all of the secondary effects caused by the paralysis from TM. So our uh, second panelist this evening is Dr. Sadowski, she was born in Romania and attended the Institute of Medicine and Pharmacy in Bucharest. She completed an internship and residency in internal medicine at Meridia Huron Hospital, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. From there, she began a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Immediately following the completion of her second residency, she began a fellowship in spinal cord injury medicine at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine. At the same time, she became a clinical instructor in the school's Department of Neurology and later assumed an assistant professorship 
in Neurology in the Division of Rehabilitation Spinal Cord Injury Unit. In October 2004, she moved to Baltimore, joining the Kennedy Krieger Institute as director of the Paralysis Restoration Clinic in the International Center for Spinal Cord Injury. In March 2005, she became an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She frequently serves as an invited clinic, clinical scientific peer reviewer for the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Journal of Rehabilitation Research and Development, the Journal of Spinal Cord Medicine Translational Research. She also serves as a section editor for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Reports. So welcome and thank you both and Kristen for joining us today. Um, to start, I know we, we've gotten a lot of questions, um, but just to start, I know uh, Dr. Sadowski, there's a, a brief PowerPoint just kind of giving an overview on the topic. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over to you, Dr. Sadowski. Good afternoon. Uh, as you heard, I'm Kristina Sadowski. My uh, interest in, uh, in the bladder function and uh, neurologic injuries uh, started about 20 years ago when I got, became interested in, in uh, paralysis related to spinal cord injury and disease. So. Um, I am going to just um, go over a couple of basic functional and anatomic, mostly functional uh, uh, information related to uh, bladder dysfunction in the transverse myelitis and other spinal cord injury related diseases. So the bladder function in itself, uh, bladder function has two uh, specific uh, um, uh, elimination and storage type of, of uh, uh, activity. So storage requires for the bladder to be stretchy and the sphincter that prevents leaking. It's basically uh, kind of like a balloon that gets uh, filled with water and that gets tied down by a sphincter to, to stop uh, leaking. The elimination part is when the balloon gets untied and requires the bladder muscle to contract efficiently, so the balloon to get smaller, and the sphincters to open at the time when that is needed. There are two sphincters. One of them is under volitional control, and I believe that there are some questions about that a little bit later in the podcast. And, the, and then there is one that is not under volitional control. It just acts in synergy with the bladder or should act in synergy in, with the bladder uh, muscle. Next. The problems with the bladder in transverse myelitis are related from muscle spasms or uninhibited muscle contractions in the bladder muscle and the lack of coordination between the uh, squeezing activity of the bladder muscle and the opening activity of the sphincter, which is called the Schuster sphincter dysenergia. In clinics, in, in, in your case, it will manifest as either urgency, frequency of urination, incontinence with accidents, sometimes inability to void on your own or uh, having inability to empty completely, having uh, uh, as a consequence recurrent urinary tract infection. Next. 
the general treatment from the pharmacologic part, I'm going to, to let the, uh, the surgical part, uh, Dr. Lima, but the uh, pharmacologic part, uh, the treatment uh, um, works to either decrease the bladder spasm or increase the bladder compliance or help with the opening of the sphincter, one of the sphincters, um, using medications. And uh, I'm not going to go through the specific medications because obviously this is, at the, will, is a decision that is being made in between the provider and the patient. But those are the principles. I understand that there is an interest in, in uh, urinary tract infections because there is a uh, a problem with recurrent uh, UTI. Uh, we treat the individuals that the, the clinicians that deal with with um, urinary tract infections in in neurogenic bladder. We only treat the symptomatic ones because if uh, you manage your bladder using a catheter, chances are that at any time if we do a culture, we would find some sort of a bug. So we only treat the bugs that are creating, that have a, physio, a pathophysiologic consequence, meaning they give a disease. Uh, discomfort or pain, the uh, onset of urinary incontinence, or your continent, and then some, somehow the frequency in incontinence rec, uh, uh, increases. You might have increased spasticity. Um, you might feel lethargic, have this stiffness, sense of unease. Um, you might have problems with the labile blood pressure, either too high or too low, with, uh, with goosebumps and facial flushing and sweating and stuff like that. The diagnosis and, um, and treatment, in, and this is very personalized, I'm, I'm going to talk only about what I do. I usually, I never treat just empirically. I ask my patients to please get a urine specimen, send it out to the lab. I will do an empiric treatment based on previous cultures with an antibiotic, and then when I get the result of the culture, I will tailor the treatment specifically and narrowly to the bug. Because if we use uh, the big guns, antibiotics, we end up creating uh, more troubles by creating resistant bugs. The treatment for a complicated UTI, which is the definition of a UTI in a neurogenic bladder, is seven to 10 days. I actually do the, ten, the full 10 days. It is not the three days one to three days, which is done in, in non-neurogenic bladders. The next one, I think this is it? No. Okay, recurrent uh, urinary tract infections are related to, uh, to risk factors. And being a female and having a short urethra, uh, have being sexually active, having pre-existing condition like an um, anatomic abnormalities in the lower urinary tract, having problems with immunity, kidney or bladder stones, swollen kidneys, uh, thickened bl uh, bladder wall, uh, the fact that uh, the 
person uses a, a, a catheterization uh, to empty the bladder. These are all risk factors that increase the risk for urinary tract infection. So I look for each one of them and try to minimize them. Testing of the, of the uh, bladder function is being done with blood work, with renal ultrasounds to look at, uh, at the kidney, if it has um, any stones or if it is swollen, uh, bladder ultrasound or, or to, to look at post-void residual to make sure that the, uh, the bladder is emptying. Then do the, the gold standard urodynamic testing, which I'm sure Dr. Lee Mack will talk about. Um, CTE or MRI of the abdomen, and more specialized tests, uh, uh, radiology tests, and then cystoscopy and cystometography in which uh, the urologist takes an actual look inside the bladder and looks for causes and consequences of the disease. That's that, that's kind of an opening st statement. Great, that was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Sadowski. And I know we'll get into more detail about kind of each of those issues that you talked about with um, more specific questions. Um, so for, for the first question, uh, Dr. Lamac, um, so this, this came in from, from one of our listeners. Uh, since my diagnosis of neuromyelitis optica, I lost bladder and bowel control. Will I ever regain control? Um, I still do have weakness three months now since they were hospitalized and diagnosed, and they've had steroids, plasmapheresis, and rituximab. Um, is, you know, and also just more generally, kind of like how does uh, regaining control of, of bladder function maybe occur over time in these conditions? Yeah, <clears throat> all right, uh, thank you. So. Um, it's, it's certainly too early to, to know if it's really only three months uh, as to when or if um, you will gain control. There's certainly reason to think that with proper treatment of the NMO, appropriate diagnosis and management, that bladder function certainly can improve with time. Um, and so it's hard to know. Each, each case is different. It depends on the, the location of the lesions and, and the severity of the disease process. But in general, uh, there certainly can be improvement with time. Um, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, evaluating you more fully, seeing exactly what the nature of the problem is, because everybody's problem might be slightly different. And even if there's, um, there continues to be ongoing problems with bladder, most of these bladder problems in most of these situations um, really can be effectively managed either with medications or other types of treatments, surgeries, and so forth. So I wouldn't lose hope. I think there's certainly plenty of time to, to work that out. And even if we can't make it completely better, I, I suspect in most situations, you'll certainly be able to get things much better with the appropriate treatment. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lamarck. Um, so Dr. Sadowski, we also had another question regarding muscle control and the bladder being full from um, one of the listeners. They wanted to know if it's possible to regain muscle strength so you could eliminate the need for um, calfing and if so, what kind of exercise would be helpful to strengthen the bladder? So, um, depends. Well, number one, it depends on what time in the disease the, uh, the, this question arises. As, as Dr. Max said uh, a little bit earlier, if you're early in the disease, we're in the uh, neurologic deficit, we can wait and see 
um, and help the bladder, uh, help retrain the bladder. If it, if we're talking about uh, uh, being unable to void on your own three to five years after the injury, um, the I couldn't, I can't say that that the bladder needs to be strengthened, the muscle needs to be strengthened because that's not what the problem in in the typical transverse myelitis uh, situation is, uh, the one in which you have muscle spasms in the legs. So if you have muscle spasms in the, in the legs, then you probably have muscle spasms in the bladder. Muscle spasms are working in themselves to strengthen the bladder muscle. So it's not an issue of not being able to void. is not an issue of not having enough strength. It's an issue of coordinating that ability of the muscle bladder to uh, the, uh, to um, to squeeze and to contract and the sphincter to open in the opportune moment. So it might be that this is a detrusor sphincter dysenergy, this inability to coordinate the the mechanism. It can also be, if you've been for three to five or more years, if you um, have uh, had a neurogenic bladder, that you have been started already on a medication. Mostly the medications that we're using now are anticholinergics or a beta-adrenergic medication that, in, that actually weakens the bladder uh, contraction because you have the spasms, so the medication is used to weaken those spasms to ensure continence, and that in itself makes it harder to void on your own. So, um, again, without doing a specific evaluation um, of the individual, it's hard to say which of the condition is the case, but there is always a good idea to see a neurourologist or or a spinal cord injury medicine specialist with the knowledge in, in neurogenic bladder dysfunction to characterize how, what type of a bladder dysfunction you have as a consequence of the neurologic injury in order to do the proper treatment. Got it. Thank you. Um, and so a lot of the, the next few questions are about um, self-catheterization as um, you know, this is obviously a common um, thing that people with rare neuroimmune disorders have to do. Um, so, uh, Dr. Levesque, are there any effects, long-term effects from self-catheterization? -catheter so, uh, no. In, in general, in, the answer is no. I mean, I have patients that I take care of and, and, um, and probably many who care for these types of patients that are catheterizing since, you know, the age of three or four. And spina bifida patients are catheterizing their entire lives, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And, and nobody would really know that they're catheterizing. They just go into the bathroom, do their business, and, and nobody would know. Um, yes, there are risks for bladder infections, obviously true symptomatic bladder infections. Um, and, but in general, those risks are higher if you're not catheterizing and you're leaving excess urine in there. So it is important to pay attention to details, to do it appropriately, to do it as cleanly as possible, to do it as frequently as you're being recommended to do it. All those things are quite important. Uh, but in terms of other effects, no. Uh, Indwelling catheters, yeah, there's higher risk of infections. There's 
a slightly, I say slightly higher risk of bladder tumors and long-term indwelling catheters, but those aren't, those aren't necessarily true for patients on intermittent catheterization. So bottom line is, yeah, I don't think that was any, what anybody ever really wanted to do in an all perfect world wouldn't be doing it. But if you're doing it correctly and you're doing it the right interval, you certainly can do it safely and without really any untoward effects. Great. And just a, a follow-up question to that, Dr. Lamech. Is there potential for damage to the urethra or sphincters from a lifetime of, of cathing? Uh, that risk seems to be very low. There is a significant risk of damage to the sphincter and urethra of an indwelling catheter, um, and that is something that may not be easily reversible. And, and this, from a surgery standpoint, is some things that we have patients come in that have been inappropriately treated and had catheters in for years and years and years. And the next thing you know, they've, if it's a woman, they've completely eroded their bladder neck, or if it's a man, they've developed damage to their penis, and then that requires surgery to fix. So we try to avoid that. And in general, if you have an indwelling catheter, we prefer a suprapubic catheter, which is not perfect, but better. Uh, but as far as in and out catheterization or self-intermittent catheterization, damage to the urethra is rare. I mean, you can get damage in a man with scar tissue and those kind of things, and that's something that can happen to anybody with catheterization. Uh, but it's much less common than, than with indwelling catheters. And just as um, another follow-up, Dr. Lamath, you talked a little earlier about the, how much the, the bladder could hold volume-wise, and we had several more questions along the same topic. Um, how much should a person typically be outputting when they cath, or how often should they be cathing? And how do you stay hydrated without overcathing? So, uh, you know, bladder volume and capacity certainly can vary individual to individual, but in general, it's somewhere between 200 to 400 cc's. It can be higher, uh, but that's on average what normal bladder capacity is. Um, and if somebody's not voiding at all on their own, then on average, they're catheterizing somewhere between four and six times a day, again, depending on their fluid intake and so forth. On average, we'd like to have a patient make at least 1,500 cc's of urine a day. That's what we consider reasonably well hydrated. In some cases, we'll push for more. Uh, in some cases, we'll accept less. But in general, we want to see at least 1,500 cc's of urine a day. And, you know, that really shouldn't be impacted whether you're catheterizing or not. That's the urine volume we'd like. You happen to notice it more probably when you're catheterizing because you pay more attention to it. Uh, but that's kind of the volume that we're looking for. And so you can gauge the frequency of catheterization based on, you know, that total urine output for 24 hours. On average, somebody's not voiding it all on their own. On the average, somebody's catheterizing typically four to six times a day. Great. Thank you. Um, and uh, Dr. Sadowski, again, about catheterization, you know, what are the best products to use? Or, um, you know, there's, I know there's different types of lubricants and catheters. Um, and I've, you know, also heard, um, and we've had questions about, you know, concern about cancer-causing products. Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about what's out there and, and what the best products might be. So I'm going to say that probably the best uh, answer for this is going to be a nurse, but I did ask my nurses <laughs> what they prefer. And they, uh, they gave me a, a list of products that they really love. So MTG Closed System is the favorite. It's pre-lubricated. It has the right amount of stiffness, uh, provides a smoother catheterization. It's just that it is not always covered by insurance because it's a one-use single-time use, uh, fully uh, inclusive system, so it's more expensive. But 
uh, I'm starting with, with, you know, the top shelf here. Um, for single catheters, not the, the all-inclusive system, the Hollister or low-freak uh, hydrophilic catheters are being uh, are a good selection. Uh, they are pre-lubricated, and most times they come with a gripper to help guide the catheter and reduce the need to touch it. So it ensures um, a cleaner catheterization technique. For uh, females with good finger dexterity, Coloplast Speedy Cast Compact. It's a small little thing that looks like uh, really a tampon or like a lipstick. Um, there are the Speedy Cast Flex Coude Pro. It's also nice. Um, and it's better, it's used more frequently in males that have a little bit of a trouble passing the catheters. I personally don't have a favorite for a lubricant because some, most of the products that I just spoke about um, are pre-lubricated, so um, um, I don't have the need for extra lubrication. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Lamack, uh, another question for you regarding the best method for casting, specifically um, how sanitary should someone be? Should they take precautions and use gloves? Um, and what's the best way for cleaning the area before casting? Yeah, so uh, these are the kind of questions where you kind of have to take a step back and you have to sort of say, well, what's realistic and appropriate for something that somebody may have to do for the rest of their lives? and balancing that with wanting to try to avoid infections as much as possible. And so it's hard to really answer that question, except to say, you know, I will say that people who in general are as more as fastidious as they can be seem to do better with infections. That's not to say I recommend that you need to, you know, be completely sterile by any means or even, um, you, you know, use special precautions. I think uh, the most important thing, honestly, is uh, using adequate lubrication uh, to get the technique right, not to reinsert uh, if you've not got it in the right place, not to traumatize, um, and avoiding those kind of things. Um, so, you know, if you use a, a, a wipe beforehand, any type of wipe, frankly, then that's great. I mean, but I think the key is to uh, just keep it as clean as possible, do it as uh, the same way each time, and to do it atraumatically, just to do it on the first try, those are the most relevant and important things. Uh, beyond that, you know, you have to be realistic with what you, you really can do on a regular basis. You try to do it in a clean setting, try to do it in a controlled setting, realizing that that's just not always possible when you live your life. Right, right, that makes sense. Um, so moving on kind of from caffeine, we'll talk more about it, but we, we did get a lot of questions about controlling leaking or, you know, the urge to, to go to the bathroom. Um, and so specifically, we actually got a lot about this issue at night uh, during sleep. Um, for example, someone said, you know, what can be done to eliminate the need to get up at night to urinate? Limiting fluids doesn't work. Getting up to cast disturbs my sleep and often I can't go back to sleep. Um, this person was also taking oxybutynin um, or gingerpan. Um, and also someone else, you know, has gotten Botox treatments and is also still having issues um, at night. Um, Dr. Lamack and then Dr. Sadowski, if you could add as well. So, um, 
you know, it's a difficult thing because nocturia or nighttime wakening the void is a multi-dimensional process. Um, yes, sometimes it's about the bladder. In men, sometimes it's about the prostate. Many times it's about urine production. Many times it's about sleep disturbances, sometimes about other medications. So there's a lot of different things involved. Um, in general, as we get older, and as we get into our 50s, 60s, and 70s, we start making more urine at night compared to when we were in our 20s or 30s. In fact, when you're in your 20s, you make about 20% of your urine overnight. When you're in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, you make about 35% of your urine overnight. So you would add that increased urine production on top of a bladder that maybe not holding as much, and you end up getting sort of this nocturia. So um, if the medications haven't worked or the Botox hasn't worked, it is possible, although not necessarily always the case, but it is possible that nocturnal urine production is, is increased. And that's an easiest enough thing to figure out by doing a voiding diary and seeing how much urine you make overnight. Um, if you, in fact, have uh, increase in your nocturnal urine production, and if taking the fluid at night has not helped, then it is possible that you might be a candidate for medication, which will decrease how much urine you make overnight. This doesn't have to do with your bladder. It works on your kidneys, and there are some new products out there that might help with that. Having said that, it's not everybody that benefits from that, and certainly uh, there are some risks with taking those types of medications, and so you need to be careful and watch your electrolytes closely and have that monitored. But there are a subset of patients, uh, with, especially younger patients, who have this, what we call a nocturnal polyuria, that might benefit from that. Otherwise, absolutely get a sleep study, be evaluated for that to make sure that you know, it's not a sleep disturbance that could be contributing, but in fact, is the bladder. If it is the bladder, and if it is urine production overnight, then something like desmopressin or those types of medications may be helpful. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Sadowski, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the DVAVP, the desmopressin, uh, as, a, as a pharmacologic intervention. And I can uh, tell you that in patients with... Uh, severe overnight uh, nocturia, I uh, actually ended up uh, putting uh, a folic acid overnight in, sh in order to ensure uh, uh, sleep. Okay, thank you. And uh, Dr. Lamac, we had another question from someone. Um, their son got ADEM at age 19. He's about to turn 21 and still has to use the catheter himself. He currently takes Minitrix and oxybutan, but he feels they don't really help. Uh, are there any other treatments? Uh, he believes he won't recover if he hasn't by now. So just to be clear, he's using a self-intermittent catheterization, and he's not. So is the question, is he going to void again, or I, I'm just trying to clarify for me? It doesn't specify. It says he, he still uses the catheter himself. Um, it sounds like it's intermittent. So, um, yeah, the reason it's confusing a little bit to me is because the mirpetric and oxybutynin are primarily to help hold more and to help stop urgent continence and not necessarily to restore voiding. So if the question is, will he have a restoration of his voiding function, you know, that's a hard thing to estimate. But in general, uh, the longer you're out from this diagnosis, the, the in general, the less likely that is to occur. And, of course, there's exceptions with every rule, but in general, the longer you're out from it, the less likely that is to occur. If the question is, he's using the oxybutin and the mirpetric, and he's still leaking between catheterizations, yeah, then there certainly may be some other options to try to improve his quality of life, whether it's Botox or other types of surgical interventions. There may be some options uh, for that type of thing. 
Okay, thank you. Um, so, you know, in, in general, you know, what, what is used to prevent um, accidents or, or leakage? You know, so this one question said that they've heard about Botox, you know, is it safe? Um, what are the options out there, uh, Dr. Sadowski? We kind of, uh, I, I alluded during that uh, opening statement that there are medications that can be used, uh, one, to decrease the bladder spasms, and uh, those, uh, some of the names are Enablex, Vitropan, Vesicare, Botulinum toxin, definitely. Uh, um, and then there are some older drugs that act centrally, like amitriptyline, hyoscyamine, uh, benzoyl, so forth. If the problem with the, with the urgency and incontinence, the bladder accident, is related to the fact that the bladder is not stretchy enough, there are other medications that can be used, like Sanctura, Mirbetric, and Botox again. And if the urgency and in incontinence is related to this um, uh, dysenergia in between the bladder and the sphincter, then medications that, that affect um, uh, the, the internal sphincter, like Flomax or Cardura uh, or Hytrin, uh, can be used to um, uh, to ease that um, that dysenergic uh, uh, dysfunction. Um, the, that again, the decision on what type of medication to use is done based on individual assessment, and most of the cases performing urodynamic studies will be able to tell the uh, the, care, the provider uh, which of the phenomena is the responsible for generating the incontinence, the leakage. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Lamac, we have another question regarding Botox therapy. Uh, the question is, due to urine backing back into the kidney, and that I leaked urine somewhat regularly during the night, I had Botox therapy done. My doctor said the injections will be effective between 3 to 14 months, averaging 6 months. Will this be a lifetime recurring procedure, or will there be a time when urine will not back into the kidneys and or leakage will stop on its own? The, pr the primary indication for Botox um, is leakage, urgency and urge leakage. Um, and with regard to that, yes, when it helps you, uh, unless there's some other neurological change, it's not anticipated that you wouldn't need it. In other words, on average, you're going to need it two or three times a year. Um, yeah, correct. On average, it's around five to six months, sometimes longer, can be up to nine or 10 months. Uh, but that's very dependent on patients' expectations, how often they want it, and so forth. Um, so I would say, yes, it certainly could be a lifetime benefit if you still see a benefit. As far as the backing up to the kidneys goes, that's a more complicated question. And, and if, in fact, this patient does have what's called vesicourethral reflux, which is urine that's truly backing up, and, and I'm not sure that's really what's going on here, but if it is, that's not necessarily uh, an expectation of Botox treatment. If, the, if that's happening because there are high pressures in the bladder and the Botox is addressing those pressures, and then subsequently the reflux gets better, then, then yeah, I guess that's a possibility. I'm not sure if that's really what's going on here or not, but again, that's not the primary indication for Botox. It may be something they'd like to see with Botox injections to see that improve, but 
um, I wouldn't say it's a reliable thing that you would see after Botox treatments. Okay, thank you. Um, and then just just briefly, you know, in talking about, um, we haven't talked too much about kind of these surgical um, options, um, but this question says, I had the Mitrofenoff procedure done without a bladder augmentation. I never leaked before surgery, but now leak out of the stoma when I get bladder spasms, despite being on every type of bladder medication. Uh, my doctor recommended a bladder augmentation and a revision of the stoma to tighten it to prevent leakage. Um, with this guarantee, I don't get leakage. What about uh, the potential uh, cancer risks that I've heard of with augmentation? Uh, Dr. Lamech? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is there's no guarantees with any surgical procedures. So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go into any type of procedure thinking that there's no risk for ongoing leakage because there always is. Um, having said that, if uh, you've tried the medications um, with the, by the way, metrofenoff essentially means that there's uh, typically an appendix uh, that's used um, and directly placed into the bladder and then brought out to the skin so that you can catheterize through the uh, appendix, through the skin, and into the bladder. Um, we try to do that without an augment in some situations because, yeah, adding the augment uh, adds some other risk, adds mucus, increased infections, and so forth, and there is this tumor risk with an augment. Um, having said that, if, if you're leaking now, um, first thing to do would be to get studied, and hopefully that's already done, but usually get a video urodynamic study to ensure that the leakage is, is due to the bladder having spasms uh, and not due to some sort of anatomical problem with the metrophenol. If it's due to spasms and the medications haven't worked and Botox hasn't worked, then yeah, I think an augment would probably make the most sense. Uh, if it's not due to spasms, but it's just leaking out passively through the uh, metrophenol, uh, then maybe some type of revision of metrophenol alone would be helpful. Um, lastly, in terms of the risk of tumors, yeah, there's a risk of of developing tumors when you're using a segment of bowel and putting it in continuity with the bladder in the case of an augment. Um, however, that risk is very remote, very low, um, and I think with adequate and appropriate surveillance, meaning repeat cystoscopy uh, every year or two to watch for the development of those tumors, uh, I think it's probably overall an acceptable risk. And again, it's a quite a low risk in general. Okay, thank you, Dr. Lamack. Um, kind of changing gears now, um, we had a lot of questions about urinary tract infections. And one of the first questions that we had had to do with what are the best methods that someone can follow to prevent UTIs? For example, um, are there supplements, essential oils, uh, maybe a daily low-dose antibiotic? Uh, Dr. Sadowski, uh, do you want to uh, give us your opinion? Sure. So uh, it's... The prevention of urinary tract infections, if you do not uh, use uh, intermittent catheterization or an indwelling catheter, is being done differently than if you do use a catheter. Uh, I'll start with, uh, I personally don't know of any supplements or essential oils that can uh, prevent urinary tract infections. Good hydration, adequate hydration. Uh, um, good, uh, healthy eating. Um, um, if you do catheterization, adequate catheterization technique, as uh, Dr. Mack uh, detailed previously, are good enough methods to prevent urinary tract infections. Daily low-dose antibiotics is a definite no. 
this just leads to development of um, recurrent uh, um, uh, urinary tract infections with resistant organisms. So that is a definite no. So again, hydration, good hydration, good hygiene, good uh, uh, um, healthy eating, and exercise. Thank you, Dr. Sadowski. Um, and then, so we, you know, we talked about preventing UTIs, um, but then, you know, once someone does have a UTI, what are the best methods to treat? I know, Dr. Sadowski, you talked a little bit at the beginning about kind of your protocol. Um, Dr. Lamack, do you have anything to add? I mean, do you, do you always treat if someone comes in um, with, uh, you know, symptoms of a UTI, or is it based on urine culture and analysis? Um, yep, Dr. Lamack. Yeah, I mean, as Dr. Sadowski mentioned, I totally agree. Um, the problem is, generally speaking, you know, that uh, urine cultures are sent routinely by kind of well-meaning other providers, and then you get back a urine culture, and it's positive, and you don't know whether to treat or not. And I think probably most people listening to this podcast, and certainly both of us, see this all the time. Uh, and then, you know, the counter-argument is that most many people in the situation don't have the typical symptoms that, that most of us would have if you have a UTI. And so, you know, it's a slippery slope. But the bottom line is, uh, I think the most important thing that Dr. Sadowski mentioned earlier is to treat only when appropriate, meaning some other symptoms. And that symptom may be spasms, it may be lethargy, it may be fever, it may be back pain, it may be something subtle that only that patient knows. But but in the absence of those things, in the presence of a urine culture that's sent without any obvious symptoms, the worst thing you can do is treat that. Having said all that, yeah, we don't kind of treat blindly. If we're convinced that they're truly having a symptomatic UTI, um, we would base it on a culture we don't who do not empirically treat. Uh, I think that just leads to resistances, and probably more often than not, it's not really going to work in the, many of these patients because they do have resistant bugs anyways. Uh, so I would encourage them if they are having symptoms that they truly think are related to UTI, uh, get an appropriate culture sent, uh, get it uh, to the physician, and get it to a physician who treats takes care of these patients. Because as also was mentioned earlier, typically it takes a longer course of therapy than sort of your community acquired UTI. So you've got to be careful about that. Great, thank you. Um, and following up on that, we also had questions about chronic UTIs. So um, we've mentioned some of the tests, uh, like the cultures that can be done to identify if someone has a UTI. But are there any other tests that a urologist could order if somebody is experiencing chronic UTIs? And what if those tests don't show anything abnormal and you're still experiencing those symptoms? Dr. Sadowski? I kind of mentioned that's why I had that uh, one slide saying testing. Mm -hmm. So for uh, recurrent UTI um, imaging uh, with renal ultrasound or CT of the abdomen to look, to look uh, if there are anatomic or abnormalities or if there are stones um, or if there are consequences of a neurogenic bladder, like that, that swollen kidney that I was talking, which is hydronephrosis, which is related to the vesicoureteral reflux that we, the backing up of, into the kidneys um, that we talked previously. Checking post-void residuals, which looks at the function of the bladder, because the more uh, um, you, the bigger the, the volume that uh, space in the bladder, the more likely that 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 uh, uh, a urinary tract infection will recur. And there are some numbers 
in in traumatic spinal cord injury, uh, studies have shown that the post-word residual higher than 50 milliliters, which is uh, an ounce and a half of, of urine, um, it actually predisposes to to uh, uh, recurrent u urinary tract infection. So checking what that residual is and uh, uh, performing a cystoscopy to look on the inside, to look if there are, as I said before, signs of inflammation. And I think Dr. Lamar Kellen can actually, because he does the cystoscopies, I don't. <laughs> I, I just uh, read the reports. Uh, so maybe he can comment on uh, what he sees when he looks on the inside um, and that could predispose to um, uh, recurrent uh, uh, urinary tract infections. Yeah, the only thing I would I would add is that, um, you know, it, so yes, I think it's certainly appropriate in these situations to do those those workups, um, and we and the main thing is to to make sure we're not missing something that uh, would have an actual treatment besides just empiric therapy. So yeah, occasionally on cystoscopy we'll see foreign bodies like stones, uh, we'll see diverticula or cellules or areas in the bladder that don't drain very well. Uh, we'll see areas in the bladder that have are inflamed and in what we call cystitis, you know, trigonitis or other areas in the bladder that may be amenable to other types of treatment. Um, with regard to the kidneys, we may see kidneys that don't drain very net well, well with hydronephrosis or kidney stones or other types of kidney or ureteral abnormalities. Um, and so all those things are uncommon, but um, I think we'd be kicking ourselves if we say, oh, we missed something that really could have had a treatment besides just doing empiric therapy. So yeah, I would agree with all that. Certainly uh, upper tract imaging and patients with recurrent UTIs that we can't get a handle on the reason why it's there and cystoscopy in the appropriate patients, a relatively simple, straightforward procedure in the office, which literally takes, you know, 10 minutes or so. And so you can just reassure the patient and yourself as a physician that we're not missing something that might really have a very easy and readily available treatment that might think makes things better. Okay, thank you. Um, this is a, a similar question, um, but what about those instances for some individuals where they've um, tried educating themselves, changing the, the technique for their cathing approach, even changing the types of catheters or brands, and antibiotics just don't seem to be working where they come off of an antibiotic for treatment and then the UTI, all those symptoms come back within a week. So for those individuals that are at their wit's end with what they should do next, do you have any other um, suggestions for how these individuals can get through their current UTIs, Dr. Sadowski? So when it comes to technique, I, I go through a progressive uh, catheterization uh, protocol. I start first with clean intermittent catheterization, which does not require much except washing uh, and uh, um, reutilizing the catheter, but with proper con uh, uh, care of the catheter. Usually about six, let's say, um, patient will have about six to 10 catheters that will rotate throughout the day and will keep in uh, the soapy uh, um, uh, water uh, in between uh, usage. Once uh, we have recurrent urinary tract infections, uh, I, I am, I am uh, progressing to uh, clean technique but sterile catheters. So um, using a catheter, a one-time uh, use catheter that, that is uh, uh, sterile with a, with a clean 
sanitization technique, meaning just washing the hands and uh, um, and uh, using that one time catheter. The the tip, the the highest on this hierarchical uh, intervention is using sterile catheterization with sterile technique. Um, I don't think I have more than probably 10 patients in my 20 years of practice that <laughs> uh, reached that level. That is uh, the the um, uh, technique in which you uh, wash your hands and put sterile gloves. This is not exactly something that requires to be done. Uh, but if you are at the wit's end, I would uh, definitely um, um, resort to using sterile catheters with sterile technique. Uh, I'm coming back to the sterile catheters. I do have that, the, the this preference uh, if you have recurrent urinary tract infections. And I do believe that insurance companies are looking at a, a documentation of two or more urinary tract infections per year, but they have to have documentation with culture and sensitivity. And most of the insurance companies, if you uh, if you meet that requirement, they will pay for sterile systems, which my favorite is the the closed uh, MTG system, uh, uh, which is easy to use and um, also sterile, thus uh, limiting the uh, possibility of recurrence. Thank you. And Dr. Lamac, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I think. Um, uh, all those things are perfectly appropriate. I, I will say that, particularly in the non-neurogenic committee uh, community, uh, for recurrent UTIs, truly symptomatic recurrent UTIs, um, I will and I will say that at least in my practice, and it, again, it's not necessarily this particular group of patients, but I would say that there is a role for controlled, low-dose, specific antibiotic use daily or on a um, self-start basis. And you have to be careful with it. You have to monitor it. But I will say that. In the appropriate selected patient, it may be of some benefit. And I know you, you know, we we talked about this earlier, and 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 some feel very strongly about it, and I certainly understand that. But I will say, in a in a select group of patients, it may be appropriate. Um, and I would say after that, you know, I do take, I would say I do about uh, perhaps five or so a year patients with either MS or other neurologic conditions who have just such fulminant UTIs and recurrent pyelonephritis that they just can't get past it. Uh, we do have to go on to other surgical procedures um, to address that, even types of urinary diversion, which, again, thankfully are very uncommon. But once in a while, we have to do that. And I will tell you that once we do that and take that out of the picture, then, you know, these patients just can sort of go on with their lives. So there are other options. And, you know, it's rare, luckily, we don't have to do that very often. But on occasion, especially when it's leading to exacerbations of their underlying neurological condition, you know, you need to consider some of these other more advanced surgical options. Got it. Thanks. Um, and then, you know, uh, talking a little bit more about surgery as well, or surgical um, things related to this, um, we, we did get a question from someone. Um, her husband has transverse myelitis and currently has a suprapubic catheter. Um, he developed a wound uh, near his groin area on the left buttocks and then another one on the right. And so his wound doctor closed one of the wounds and was going to do uh, surgery on the other one, um, but he was diagnosed with having a fistula. And so the um, urine was actually leaking through the wound. Um, and so the urologist attempted a bladder neck closure, but then it opened back up again um, and, and failed. And he stated that there was too much scar tissue from the first surgery for him to close it. 
and then suggested an outside bladder. Um, so her husband still has this wound that won't close. Um, and so the wound doctor, who's wondering, you know, the wound doctor, if she, if they closed the wound, um, you know, how would this impact kind of the fistula or the, the issues uh, with the, the urinary issues that this person is experiencing? Dr. Lamech? Yeah, obviously, this is a pretty complex and specialized problem. And, and I would suggest sort of, um, yeah, getting to a higher level of care and, and making sure that um, that it's appropriately treated, uh, diagnosed, uh, um, and managed. Um, but yeah, from the sound of it, without getting, knowing the full details, it sounds like this person's headed to what's called an ileal conduit or, or, or urostomy. The only way to get this thing to dry up, in my opinion, would be to to just go ahead and do what's called a urostomy, which essentially is to uh, divert all the urine away from the bladder, probably or possibly remove the bladder. Um, but yeah, build a, a, a what's called a stoma to the skin and, and divert the urine there. And yeah, that, you know, again, if it's just the fistula involving the urinary tract and not involving the GI tract, then, then that, yeah, that should take care of it. It may take some time, but it should take care of it. Great, thank you, Dr. Lamack. We had another question regarding stem cells. Um, it's from a, an individual who has had uh, TM since 2005 and is experiencing incontinence. And they're wondering if stem cells is an option at some point to help alleviate that condition. So um, I'm going to uh, say that I can't say that there is a stem cell procedure that I know about that will help alleviate with uh, 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 bladder incontinence, um, and that's at least in the United States. Um, stem cells are still um, at the phase in which we're just figuring out what they can do. We're not yet using stem cells for specific treatment of a neurologic dysfunction. Um, with that said, I know that uh, um, stem cells are being looked upon in, to improve neurologic functions, and, different, and there are several different uh, uh, types of cells that are being uh, tested. Uh, the, the clinical trials take a bit of a time, and um, we just have to wait to see uh, um, if uh, they do impact the neurologic function, including uh, uh, the bladder function. But for now, I'm going to say that we have quite effective treatments to deal with uh, incontinence in neurogenic bladders that don't require stem cells, so being evaluated by a uh, neurourologist or a spinal cord injury medicine specialist with uh, knowledge in, in um, um, bladder management is a very effective way of improving your quality of life when it comes to bladder incontinence. And, um, you know, just thinking about, you know, all of our listeners who use a catheter or have, you know, neurogenic bladder issues, are there any sort of, um, you know, long-term kind of monitoring that needs to be done? I know we talked about renal or, or kidney ultrasounds or um, cystoscopy. Is there anything um, that's recommended, you know, either yearly or at certain intervals to just make sure everything is, is working okay? Uh, Dr. Lamech? Um, so that's actually a bit of a controversial issue, which we've written about here. 
at UT Southwestern in terms of monitoring upper tract. It used to be advocated that uh, every single person that has a neurological diagnosis has some bladder problems, they need to get their kidneys evaluated every six months, every year, and so forth. And it probably is true that, that for years and years, this was just overdone. We didn't really need to do it as much. So um, the bottom line is that there, not every neurological patient is the same. Not every neurological patient has the same uh, risk factors. And so it has to be sort of investigated one on one, you know, each patient individual. Uh, I would render to say that at the most, getting imaging of the kidneys every other year with an renal ultrasound is adequate and that most patients with either MS or transverse myelitis probably don't even require that. As far as histoscopy goes, yes, if you have an indwelling suprapubic or urethral catheter that's been in for a while, monitoring that every year or two to look for foreign bodies, stones or other tumors, which again are very unusual, is probably reasonable. If you've had an augment, yeah, absolutely monitoring cystoscopy every couple of years after the first five to 10 years is appropriate to look for tumors. Um, as far as your dynamoscope bladder function test, again, it, in the past, it was advocated this needs to be done every year or every two years. Uh, that's probably not the case for most patients with TM or MS, but it might be for patients with specific previous urodynamic diagnoses that are worrisome, and certainly patients, for example, with spinal cord injury and those kind of things may be more appropriate to do on a regular basis. Uh, but the bottom line is each patient has to be individualized, and there's no set pattern, uh, with the exception of those two things I mentioned. Got it. And Dr. Sadowski, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no. I um, my, I do annual lab work to look at creatinine, but it's not only because I do it for the neurogenic bladder. And the majority of the patients are on, on pharmacologic management of other conditions, including uh, neuropathic pain and spasticity. Thus, I take a look at the uh, the bladder and kidney and um, liver function doing a, a, a CMP. I also, uh, when it comes to urodynamics, I only check them if the bladder function changes. So if there is a uh, um, new onset of a new pattern in uh, how the bladder elimination occurs, then I will check urodynamics. Otherwise, I do not check baseline urodynamics or uh, um, or uh, ongoing yearly annual or every other year uh, urodynamics. I do, if I have a urodynamic diagnosis, or uh, um, if they have an abnormality uh, that I correct with a pharmacologic agent, I would like to uh, repeat the urodynamic testing in two to three to four months after using the medication or whatever intervention I use to make sure that I actually achieved what I intended with the, with the medication. Okay, thank you. And um, just to finish things up, we're near the end of our podcast. Um, Dr. Lamack and Dr. Sadowski, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about during the podcast today that you wanted to bring up to the listeners? Um, no, from my standpoint, that was a very thorough discussion. And again, the bottom line is, you know, every patient's different, has different issues, even though there's some things that are certainly common between patients, and we've covered a lot of those. Um, you know, if you're not getting the help you need uh, from your provider, then, you know, try to seek a specialist, whether it's in physical medicine or neurology, and, and you know, these people who have more familiarity with it. And, you know, you can't generally cure these problems, but you certainly can address quality of life issues and make things a lot better. And I think finding somebody to help you with that is probably the most important thing. Great. And Dr. Sadowski? I, uh, I second that. I do believe that exercise activity has an important role in maintaining uh, 
uh, physiologic integrity of bowel and bladder function. So being active um, uh, helps with the, because sometimes the, the bladder issues are related to bowel uh, uh, issues. So keeping active is important. Um, if the neurogenic bladder is from a traumatic spinal cord injury, which is not the case uh, with majority of the individuals that were t uh, that are on the podcast today, but there, um, is transcutaneous spinal stimulation is, uh, um, is a technological uh, rehabilitative intervention that has been uh, utilized in the last eight to 10 years, and it seems to modulate the autonomic nervous uh, function, including bowel and bladder and sexual function. So, um, you know, checking in with a, a center that specializes in uh, innovative technological or rehabilitative uh, uh, activity-based interventions is probably a good idea. Great, thank you, and thank you know thank you both so much for joining us today. I know um, it's a complicated topic, and we got through as many questions as we could. We really appreciate you taking the time, and and Kristen for joining us as well today. So thank you. Sure, my our pleasure.